some medication today. After I warned you that it'd be easier to have a root canal. I just want you to see the, the scripture that I put up here because the whole time I was griping about teaching this lesson today, Christina kept saying, but Ron, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you know what? Jesus came through again. I think you're going to like what we learned today from this lesson. You're all smiling at me. Like that. <laughs> yeah. So, so this morning, as I was backing out of my garage in my brand new car that I got for my 50th wedding anniversary, I took the mirror off oh. <laughs> in the garage. And my husband said, you did what? And I said, I just took aim, honey. I had to take that. So I'm just going to put duct tape on my Lexus mirror, brand new mirror. But Anne told me that the Mariners last night, the first pitch of the game was a home run out of the park. And then after that, he pitched a perfect game, and then they beat the Astros. So, so then I've done my bad deed for the day. Okay, so I, I, I have taken this verse to heart. And God has shown me what he wants us to learn from this passage today. So, Lord, open our ears to hear what you have to say. So, and open your Bibles to first, 2 Samuel 13. Now, I think these chapters were written by Nathan the prophet. Because in 1 Chronicles 29, it says that he wrote the histories of both David and Solomon. And in all things, Nathan has had David's back. First of all, he delivered to him the Davidic covenant in chapter 7. And as Kristen said, probably the most important chapter in all of the Bible. And then also, he confronted David in his sin with Bathsheba. And I like to envision Nathan interviewing the people about the stories that we will see that happen today. Because I think that he interviewed Tamar, he got intimate details that only she would know. And I think he wants her story heard. And he inserts little phrases throughout these chapters that indicate his love for these flawed people. So God breathed this information today and preserved it for us today all these centuries. People have risked their lives for these stories, uh, in especially in the translating of the stories. So it's time for us to take a good look at what these mean. So, chapter 13, I called Malice in the Palace. <laughs> oh, I really need you to laugh today, Cheryl, because I'm going to tell some really lame jokes. So get ready. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Remember uh, Amnon, number one son? next up to be king. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, and you can all say, boo, he's a bad guy, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Okay, David's older brother. Now, just take yourself back to when David was anointed king by Samuel when he was brought from the field. Samuel had passed over all the other brothers. I think that there is some jealousy 
in this family and take them out in passive-aggressive behavior. Um, Eugene Peterson describes Jonadab as exceptional, exceptionally streetwise. So he says, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon says, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother's Aslan's sister. Ah, he Jonadab says, go to bed and pretend you're sick. And when your father comes, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and cook something and feed me. So then we have first bad guy, Amnon. Second bad guy, Jonadab. One bad guy and one worse guy. <laughs> so the underlining theme of all these chapters today, just in case you're interested, I made a little list. Lust, manipulation, power, rape, bitterness, hatred, revenge, anger, desolation, murder. And if that's not enough, we have fake news, treason, all unresolved because of passive-aggressive anger. It all started by these two men close to the king, number one son and nephew. And we see the sin pattern that I described a couple weeks ago with David and Bathsheba, which is see, desire, take, death. All right, first we have incest and the rape of Tamar. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick, and the king came to see him, and he said, I would like to have my sister Tamar come and make some special bread in my side. So David sent word to Tamar, go to the palace. So she went to her brother who was lying down, and she took some bread and kneaded it and made it in his sight, and she took the pan and served him, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here. So everyone left, and then he said to her, bring the food here to my bedroom so I might eat it from her hand. She took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom, and when she took it, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. <laughs> I read this morning in the paper that the New York Times got a Pulitzer Prize for breaking the Weinstein Me Too story. Did I say that right? Yeah. Anyway, but the Bible broke it first. Whoever wrote this down interviewed Taylor because we were going to see intimate details. No, my brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please, speak to the king. He'll not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger, she, he raped her. God and our author give Tamar a voice. This is God-breathed, the telling of this story. This story is for all eternity. And then it says Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. And he said to her, get up and get out. No, she said, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman that was very insulting after all he had done to her. Out of my sight and bolt the door after her. 
So his servant put her out and bolted the door. And she was wearing, we even get what she was wearing from the author of this story. An ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the kings wore, of the king wore. So here we have Tamar's desolation. She put ashes on her head and tore the robe she was wearing and put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. All these little details. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't this, take this thing to heart. Duh, what a guy. And Tamar lived in her brother's house, a desolate woman. The word desolation is the theme of these next few chapters. Everyone in this room lives in one of two states, desolation or consolation. Jesus wants us to live in consolation, even when we are in desolation. And we're going to explain more as we go along. When David, King David heard this, he was furious. But Absalom never said a word, either good or bad. He hated Ammon because he had disgraced his sister. And that's all we hear from David, that he was furious. Nothing. So what this reminds me of when I'm thinking about all this anger is when my son was a teenager, I was a sea, a drift. I had no idea how to deal with him. And someone gave me a book called How to Really Love Your Teenager. And it was brilliant. I think it's out of print. It was by Ross Campbell, very dated. And I've lost my copy, or copies. I think I you know, loaned it to several people. But in it, he had something that has stayed with me always. And that is his definition of the anger ladder. And so I'm going to quickly share it with you today. And then at the end, I'll leave it up in case anybody wants to take a picture of it. So at the first part of anger, we have pleasant behavior. When two people are getting along and you say, you know, what you did just kind of upset me. Let me tell you why. And oh, I'm sorry that happened and let's discuss it. Then the second thing is that you seek resolution for the conflict. These are good. Focus anger on the source only. And then you hold to the primary complaint. We're still in the good part of this, but we're going to go down. You think logically and constructively. And then now it's going to start getting bad. Unpleasant and loud behavior. Curses. Becoming angry at a bystander instead of the source of the anger. You're mad at one child, and then another child just happens by, and you get mad for no apparent reason. Then you have expressing unrelated complaints. Well, you did this, but you've also done that. And then I've never thrown objects when I've been mad, but I've seen, you know, like Lucille Ball do it or something, you know, and I think, boy, that'd be really fun to break a bunch of plates, but I've, I've never done that. And that's also fault now, so we're getting worse and worse. Destroy property, verbal abuse, emotionally destructive behavior, calling names about, you know, you're stupid, you're dumb, I never wanted you in the first place, that kind of thing. Physical abuse. And then the worst, he says, is passive-aggressive anger. And that's what's going on today. Yeah, it's like, whoa. Absolutely the worst. Because Amnon has not said, uh, Absalom has not said a word. So, passive-aggressive anger puts you in deeper desolation. 
That's what happens with passive-aggressive anger. So what do we have now? Evil plots, revenge, deceit, and murder. Two years later, when Aslam Sheepshers, when Bayal Hazor, near the border, he invited all the king's sons to come there. Absalom went to the king and said, your servant has had shearers come. Won't you and the king and everybody come? And the king says, no, I don't want to be a burden to you. And Absalom says, oh, please, I really want you to come. No, 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 I'm not going to come. Well, will you sell, send Amnon? And David says, what? Why? Why do you want him? It's been two years. Why do you want him? Oh, please, just, just send him. Maybe, maybe they're going to make up, right? After all this time. So he says, all right, go ahead. And then Absalom says to his servants, listen, when Amnon is drunk, strike him dead. When I give the order, and he says, don't worry about it, be strong, be courageous, I want you to do this. So Absalom did that, they murdered Amnon, and all the king's sons that had come with them mounted up and fled. And now we have the fake news. While they're on their way, a report came to David, Absalom has killed all your sons. Jonadab says, oh no, don't worry, only one, Amnon. Jonadab again, in on the plot, he knew. But everybody is lying on the floor, they're tearing their clothes, they're mourning, they're just absolutely terrified. And then a man standing watch says, oh no, someone's coming down the hill, and, and it's all the king's sons. And the king's sons come in, and they're all mourning together. The number one son, who is in line to be king, has been murdered by number two son. And Jonadab said, see, I told you. It was only one. So what happens next? Absalom flees. And in 2 Samuel 3, it says, he, Absalom was born of Maacah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And so was his sister, Tamar. So he and his sister and all his family, they go and live with Grandpa in the king of Geshur. So when he fled to Geshur, he stayed there three years. So now it's been five years. The king finally gave up trying to get him back, and he'd come to terms with Amnon's death. Chapter 14. Joab knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom, so he had a wise woman from Tekoa, and he says, go to the king and pretend to be this and this. So she does. And she comes and she says to the king, uh, I, I have a problem, and he says, well, what's troubling you? And she says, I'm a widow. I have, my husband is dead. I had two sons. They were out in the field and they were fighting each other and no one would separate him and one killed the other. And now all my relatives want the one who killed the other for blood for blood. And they're saying, give him over. And this, this would destroy me. I would have no son. And the king says to her, David says, go home. I will issue an order on her behalf. The first time he says that to her. And then she says, but my lord, please pardon and, and let your king be without guilt. Um, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me. Um, the king says, I'll not bother them again the second time, he said to her. And then she says, um, let the king invoke the lord and prevent the avenger blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as the lord lives, not one hair of your son's head will fall on the ground, says David. He's still not getting it. So the woman says, let your servant speak one more word. And she, he says, speak. And she says, then why have you done this in Israel? The king 
has convicted himself, for the king has not brought back his banished son. And so she reminds him of his own repentance after he murdered Uriah and how the Lord took him back. So she says, that's why I've come. And so David says, okay, I get it now. Let me ask you one more question. Is Joab behind this? She says, yes. And so he says, okay, let's bring Absalom back. So Joab brings Absalom back. And Joab falls on the face before David and says, you are wonderful. You know everything that's happened in the land. And so then the king says to Joab, very well, I'll do it. Bring Absalom home. So Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back. But the king said, you must not come to my house. I don't want him to see his face. So he was not allowed to see the king's face. Still more unresolved anger and passive aggressive anger. All right, how do you like my picture of Absalom? <laughs> All Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. I love these little details. Whenever he cut the hair on his head, and he used to cut it once a year, because it was too heavy for him, he would weigh his hair. You see, ladies, it's all about hair. <laughs> and I confess to you, I'm letting my hair grow gray, and my kids say to you, Mom, say they, they say to me, what did you do over the weekend? And I said, I watched my hair grow. <laughs> Checking it out. Where's it coming in? How's it coming in? And I come by this naturally because my mother was obsessed with hair. And when she was dying, she was living over at the Hearthstone, and I took her to the University Presbyterian Church one night, and it was absolutely packed, and we sat in the back, and Dave Brewer was preaching, and he's bald. And so at the end of the sermon, when everybody's filing out, she said, I want to talk to that man. And I thought, oh, my mother's finally having a spiritual breakthrough. She wants to talk to the pastor. So I said, you sure you want to go? Yes, yes, I want to go. So I take her and I protect her and I get her all the way to the front of the church where he's standing and talking to me. And she goes, tucks on the shirt. And he looks at her and he smiles and she says, I just want you to know, God made a few perfect heads and on the rest he put hair. <laughs> I wanted you to turn into a puddle. Okay, Absalom had three sons and a daughter, and the daughter's name was Tamar. I think this is Tamar's consolation. She has a niece named after her, and the writer says she became a beautiful woman. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face, and he sent for Joab, and he said, I want to go see the king, but Joab refused to come. So he sends for Joab again, and Joab refused to come. So Absalom, oh, we're just going to love Absalom. He says, all right, set his field on fire. <laughs> now Joab got it. I'm going to go. I'm going to go see what he wants. And Absalom says, look, I sent word to you. So you see, Absalom wouldn't go to him. No, he had to come to Absalom. Oh, why have I come from Geshur? It'd be better for me if I was still there. I want to see the king's face. So Joab went to David and told him this, 
And the king summoned Absalom. He said, hey, you've got to do this. He's burning my fields, right? No, he bowed down, and the king kissed Absalom. Now it says, chapter 15, verse 1, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horse and 50 men who run ahead of him. <sighs> Just like a brand new car that you take the mirror off, right? <laughs> He'd get up, vanity, all vanity. He'd get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate, and whenever anyone came with a complaint, He'd say, oh, if only I were the judge, then I could answer your complaint. And when people, uh, so first of all, he criticizes David. He says he doesn't have time to hear you. I would take care of you. And then he uh, criticizes David himself. If I were appointed, then I would, I would do justice. I would do exactly what you want. And then when anyone would come and bow to him, he'd take hold of him and kiss him. Oozing charm from every pore, he oiled his way around the floor. <laughs> My fair lady, act two. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for judges, justice, so he stole the hearts of the people. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, I, I want to go worship. Would you let me go to Hebron and worship? <gasps> Oh, David's thrilled. Absalom, he's going to become finally a spiritual person. Yes, he says, go and worship in peace. So Absalom went to Hebron. And Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem accompanied Absalom. They'd been invited as guests but went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. I love that that fact is here. This is an eyewitness who's saying there were 200 men who went there under, and, and didn't know what was going on. And while Absalom is offering sacrifices, not only did we have fake news, now we have fake worship, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileadite, David's counselor, who came from Gilal, his hometown. Now, Several commentators have traced this, and they think, they're not sure, they think Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, which would give you reason for why he hated David. And it says, Absalom's following kept increasing, and suddenly David hears that the heart of the people are with Absalom, and he is in danger. And so David says to his men, come, we have to flee Jerusalem. None of us will escape from him. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready, whatever you say. So the king set out with his entire household following him. But he left ten concubines, which we're going to hear about next week, in the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted a place a distance away. All his men marched past him, along with the Kirathites, the Pelathites, and the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath, marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner in exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday. Why do you want to go out with me in the desert and flee? No, he says. 
I am going to stay with you. And here, I try quotes and paraphrases Ruth, what she says to Naomi in the book of Ruth. As surely as the Lord, Yahweh, lives, and my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there will I be. I love your Lord, and I love you. David had brought righteousness and justice to these foreigners and immigrants. And he says to, to Atai, go ahead, march on. So he marched on, and all families with him. And the whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the desert. Everyone in desolation. Everyone weeping. Zadok, the priest, was there too, and all the Levites were with him, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They were not alone. God was with them. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people finished leaving the city. Constant, true worship. Not Absalom's worship, false worship in Hebron, but true worship and prayers constantly going up as the people are fleeing the city. God is with them in this desolation. And the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God and go back to the city. And if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok, aren't you a priest? While you're in the city and your sons are there, if you hear anything, you can bring me the news. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, his head covered, he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too, weeping as they went. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Oh Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. That's okay. <laughs> it's just God talking. Maybe it's my mother. Who knows? Maybe she heard me tell that joke from heaven. Okay. <laughs> Alright, so he's praying, Oh Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship, Hushai, the archite, was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head, another foreigner. David says to him, If you go with me, it will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, I was your father's servant. He wants him to lie, which is Fine, right? <laughs> Good cause. But now I'll be your servant. And then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. We're going to hear about that next week, too, right? Listen, yeah, it's not her head. So, won't the priest say that can be at their feet? So you can tell them and anything, and they'll come tell me. And so the last verse of our chapters says So David's friend Hushai arrived in Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. So let's just look a little bit at David's desolation. David has enemies. His son, Absalom, 
his son's advisor, Ahithophel, and the general population. But the key verse here is what David says when he says, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And I hope this reminds you of Jesus' desolation in the garden when he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, it says, he prayed more earnestly till he sweat like drops of blood on the ground. But we have seen that David has consolation. He has friends. Foreigners, the Kirathites, the Pelethites, immigrants, the Gittites, people who would come to live under him for blessing and protection, and they are willing to die with him. And then we have all the priests, Zadok, his son, Abiathar, and his son, and all of the Levites are with David. And then we have Hushai, the archite, another foreigner, called in First Chronicles, David's friend. Hushai was the king's companion at all times and the king's friends. So we have a choice today, ladies. We can live in desolation or consolation. It's our choice in daily life. But David's Yahweh, our Lord, provided consolation for David in his weeping, and he provides consolation for us. As the Levites offer prayers and sacrifice until everyone was safely out of the city, there are times in our lives when you need your friends to pray for you in desolation and in consolation. Jesus provides everything. He became desolation for us, that we might have consolation in him. And then, as far as the friends go, how important they are is brought to us by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 8-11. I'm going to read this from the message. We don't want you in the dark, friends, about how hard it was when all this came down on us in Asia province. It was so bad, we didn't think we were going to make it. We felt like we'd been sentenced to death row, that it was all over for us. As it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. Instead of trusting in our own strength or wits to get us out of it, we were forced to trust God totally. Not a bad idea, since he's the God who raises the dead. And he did it, rescued us from certain doom, and he'll do it again, rescuing us as many times as we need rescuing. You and your prayers are part of the rescue operation. I don't want you in the dark about that either. I can see your faces even now lifted in praise for God's deliverance of us a rescue in which your prayers played a crucial part. Now, as I look out among you, 
and I see your wonderful groups. I know that many of you know that the person on your left and on your right might be in either desolation or consolation. So I want you to just close your eyes right now and just take a minute. Think of the person on your right hand and I want you to pray a prayer for them. If they are in desolation, pray a blessing on them of God being with them in their desolation. If they are in consolation right now, give praise to God for bringing them through the trials of their life. And now do the same thing for the person on your left. If they are in desolation, ask God to bless them, encourage them, lift them up, open their eyes to his presence in their desolation. If they are in consolation, thank the Lord that he has brought them through one more time. Father, we do thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for us, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we might be equipped to do the good works that you have planned for us since the foundation of this world. Amen. And now, I'll just put this up here for a few minutes, and I'm going to go scramble some eggs. <laughs>